0: Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. The podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time so probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello, folks. Welcome to episode 77 of the Tango Fox Foxtrot Podcast. Hope you're all well. So I've had some uh, quite a lot of feedback uh, about last week's guest, Craig. I must admit, this was one of the more challenging... I suppose, ethically challenging, Uh, challenging on all sorts of levels. It was a a tricky interview, I find, to try and strike the right balance between, on one hand, uh, getting Craig to talk openly about his past, was at the same time not wanting to sound judgmental. But perhaps there was something there about me being insufficiently challenging, which I probably fully accept. I did quite get quite a lot of feedback from various quarters. Some of it was really, really positive, saying this was fascinating to listen to someone talking about their criminal offending in a way that would be really helpful to police officers, particularly uh, inexperienced police officers, to understand the mindset of young out-of-control criminals who are thinking only of themselves and not at all of the public or their victims. I just thought it'd be useful to read out some feedback from one particular individual who shall, for obvious reasons, remain nameless. But this person has not only been a police officer for a long time, but also now works with uh, young men who are very similar, I suppose, to uh, what Craig was back in those days. So they have young men who have had a difficult maybe start in life, uh, who have been excluded from school, probably in and out of custody, etc. And I'll read what uh, what this person says. Um, there's a bit of swearing in here, so apologies in advance. Difficult to know what to think about Craig. Bottom line is he isn't a criminal anymore, so that's good. I think if he was truly repentant, He would find a way of atoning for the crimes he got away with. There are victims out there still. I didn't sense any contrition. I thought his story about stroking the police dog was nonsense. Nice dog, chew on this. That's bullshit. I also don't buy the trauma accounting for a life of very serious crime. I don't think he was stealing cars to escape. That's bullshit. I think he had probably found something exciting and was getting credence for what he was doing. And this might have been a way of compensating for his trauma. The main point for me is exactly as you discuss at the end, really about young men needing more than many get. My recent experience suggests they do need, but many lack, strong boundaries from either an effective dad or mum. Time and again, weak parenting gives boys particularly an opportunity to act like complete cunts. But this is obviously more tricky for single parents who can't do everything however hard they try. Add trauma into that and it's a recipe for something, but it isn't always crime. I think we have a major problem generally with boys having a lack of respect for anyone else, but particularly women. I think because their mums run around after them like their personal servant, and I've seen this many times at close range. What's worse is that their role models genuinely are people like Andrew Tate or stupid footballers or those idiots on reality TV. They're bored at school, bored at home, and they have nothing to engage them. So would Craig have been the same if he hadn't had trauma? I think at least possibly and probably. Was he the right person to have on your chat show? Yes. Was he being truthful? Question mark. Probably as much as anyone with that background. Could he do some good if he was to talk to disaffected youths? Question mark. Yes, but he would need to point out that what he had done is wrong without question. So I thought that was a really interesting response, very balanced and considered. And uh, yeah, I think without a doubt, I probably should have challenged some of that thinking because when I listened back to it, it did sound as if he was slightly glorying in it. And considering that he's talking about having committed serious offences, such as armed robbery or pulling people out of cars at gunpoint, there are people out there probably still to this day suffering severe trauma as a result of that. So uh, if I got the balance wrong in that interview, uh, that's something for me to, I suppose, reflect on and learn from. As they say, moving forward, which is an expression I absolutely hate. Anyway, uh, this week I'm going to be interviewing Christian Plyman. Like This is going to be a really fascinating interview, I think, because um, Christian has done some really incredible stuff, both in policing and since leaving policing, uh, all around uh, covert policing, undercover work. And then once he left policing, he went on to spend many years tackling the illegal trade in things like ivory rhino horn and endangered species in many countries of Africa so I think you're going to find it fascinating.
1: Hey Ian how are you doing good to see you. Hold on. I'm, I'm very well
0: how are you?
1: Um, not bad, mate. Not bad. You're looking very uh very
0: cozy. Well, I look like uh, in the Nanook of the North, don't I? It's uh I I've got a I've got an office. It sounds terribly um bourgeois, doesn't it? That I've got i I've, I've got a garden got a garden office, you know. You've got you've probably got this vision of this sort of um wonderful sort of art deco thing, you know, where the big handle. Who was that author? So I'm getting all pretentious now. Who was a, was a very well-known author who used to have a garden office, he used to have a big um, handle. they could turn it, turn the entire thing round, so it was always facing the sun. So. <laughs> but I can assure you, it's, I can assure you, it's nothing, it's nothing like, like that. that. No, no, no. It's bloody freezing, actually. Um, so, how are you doing anyway? You all right?
1: Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for taking the time. I
0: appreciate it. No, it's great. And uh, I was thinking to myself, if uh, if the Tango Juliet Fox podcast was was mi6 uh, and i was sat in a embassy in berlin or something you would be the, you'd be the equivalent of a walk-in wouldn't you so uh, absolutely in, in the sense absolutely that, in the sense that you propped yourself up um which is brilliant when people do that because uh Particularly if they've got a fascinating story to tell. Some people, to be fair, prop themselves up and don't have a fascinating story to tell. And then, you, well, and then you have to, and then you have to find a gentle way of saying thanks ever so much, but no sure. thanks, you know. But in your, in your case, I thought I would bite, I would bite your arm off. So yeah. No, oh, um, so because you,
1: you do a you do a really cracking podcast. I think it's really good. Uh, and I was particularly, as I as I alluded to in my email, I was particularly taken with the podcast that you you did with the uh, with Joe, yeah, um,
0: yeah,
1: the the UC officer. Do you know uh, Do you know Joe from,
0: from I your do? Past? Yes, yes,
1: yes. yes. <laughs> I, won't, I won't I won't reveal anything about him. But yes, I do.
0: Yeah. He's a character, isn't he? He's certainly he a character. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all characters from that world, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, very so. much so. <laughs> big, very much, big, so. big, big personalities. But um, yeah, so for the purposes of people listening, then do you want to sort of briefly introduce yourself in terms of uh, who you are and you know what you're currently doing? Of course, yeah.
1: Cheers, Ian. My name's Christian Plowman. Um, I was in the Met Police from 1995 to 2011, um, and since leaving the Met, where I served as a as a detective, uh, chis handler. Um, erstwhile UC officer Um, and since leaving the Met I have worked um, in the private sector a bit and then uh, the last eight years or so I've worked in the field of uh, uh, combating the illegal wildlife trade transnationally Um, so I worked for Interpol for a short period which is my introduction into this very unique uh, environment Um, And then subsequently, I've worked for several NGOs and currently work for a very big American uh, conservation NGO focusing on work in sub-Saharan Africa mainly.
0: Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. And this is one of the great joys of doing this podcast is that you get to meet people who are doing things that are, you know, we can talk about the policing but obviously and we will, um, but we can also talk about the things that you've done since there. And that's and I don't know anything about that world. So <laughs> so <Well. laughs> so every day every day is a school day on the Tango Juliet Fox shop podcast. So <clears throat> excuse me. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing all about what that actually means in practical terms and how you brought your law enforcement knowledge, skills and experience to bear on on that very uh important subject that I think Many people, including myself, feel quite passionate about it, but yeah, uh, don't really know anything about it. So anyway, let's talk about your policing uh career first, shall we so um what what was it that um brought you into the police in the first place? Did your family in the police, or what was it that that sort of propelled you in there?
1: No, I mean i I joined the police I would you know it would be a bit trite to say on a whim. Um, it was a bit of a recognition that I needed, I needed a sort of sensible job, to be honest. Uh, my partner at the time had fallen pregnant and I, and I thought, oh, I need to sort of step up and take responsibility mm. rather than flitting to and fro from uh, sort of muck jobs. Um, I, I needed to do, do something. Um, and some members of her family were in the police and I thought, yeah, I'll give it a, give it a bash. Uh, the usual, you know, the usual sort of story really. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I went, went to, I think I seem to recall the application process took nearly 18 months back in, it was in 1990, late 1993, I think I applied Right. Um, and it took a very long time to get through the whole thing.
0: And this is a very important question and you must forgive me for my impertinence in asking it, but uh, I don't know if you've read my book, but did you have to bend over and show them your arsehole when you were doing it yeah. medical? Did you? Yeah, absolutely. So they were still was, doing that back in 1993?
1: Yeah yeah absolutely um I, I remember going through this process as a as a as a candidate um and i can't remember if the medical was at hendon or paddington green it was probably at hendon i think but we had to wear hmm. a surgical surgical completely naked we had to wear surgical <laughs> gowns the ones with the that exposed your back basically yeah 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 um and i just remember feeling <laughs> slightly perturbed that we're wandering around what
0: was that all about (laughs) i (laughs) I have no idea i think as a collective every police officer every metropolitan police police officer between about 1829 and whenever they stopped doing it (laughs) should collectively do a a super injunction a super complaint or something and get some get some (laughs) compensation for the trauma of having to do that but uh, anyway moving on from that (laughs) rather (laughs) distasteful subject um so where did you get posted first of all uh
1: i was i i remember uh, um, they asked us for posting preferences and i didn't really understand divisional structure or anything like that prior to joining and i and i asked to be posted to um uh west end central because i assumed that it covered oxford street which ultimately it didn't but but nonetheless I wanted to work in the West End because it was busy. Um
2: mm.
1: I did I did languages at A level and foreign languages and I thought, oh, I can use my languages with, in a yeah. sort of touristy area. And I did get posted to West End Central, which I was really pleased about. All
0: right. Okay. Um Charlie let me see, was that um oh god, it's not Charlie Delta, is it? Charlie yeah, yeah. Is that Charlie. Charlie Delta?
1: Delta, yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So West End Central at the time, the actual West End Central Nick wasn't open when I when I Passed out of Hendon, so we were based out of Vine Street, which no longer exists. Mm. Um, And our prisoners were processed at Bow Street, which also no longer exists.
2: Um,
1: And I think in 1996 we moved to the brand new West End Central in Savile Row, um, which now no longer exists. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Another yet another another
0: victim of austerity, isn't it?
1: Um, And I spent probably most of my probation um working mainly in mainly in Mayfair, which was quite boring to be honest, but, but mm-hmm. occasionally I had opportunities to flit across into into Soho, which was much more much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then post probation I spent I spent most of my time in Soho and I worked on a couple of um, divisional units that concentrated mm-hmm. on vice-related offences in Soho, yep. went on to the divisional crime squad. Um, and then um started to to do my detectives uh, my detectives exam and all yeah. the rest of that sort of jazz.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and ultimately i I progressed onto being a detective with a a small spell in between on the marine support unit or Thames Division. Oh,
2: bloody hell, um, what
1: took you there?' Uh, a- I just, I
0: just <laughs> Was that a bet?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I uh, Bizarrely, the, I mean, I was a really proactive cop and I loved doing proactive police work. Um, and a friend of mine was on the Marine Support Unit who was also a proactive chap. Um, and the Marine Support Unit had a proactive team, believe it or not, right. um, which is a huge step for the Marine Support Unit, I have to say. <laughs> um, uh, and I was, I mean... I was very naive but I was effectively promised a posting on their proactive unit if I applied and yeah. I did apply uh didn't go on to their proactive unit and then spent sort of you know six months trundling up and down the Thames not really doing very much uh crashed one of the boats into Southwark Bridge <laughs> which was good fun um good skills yeah decided it wasn't for me and then went back to the
0: sort of it's one of those i I probably need to get someone from from the marine side Uh, not just Lemet because i know other forces around the country of particularly those on the south coast have have got similar similar capabilities haven't they Uh, you know sort of hampshire's sort of sussex and And kent as well dorset and kent and places like that so if there's anybody listening to this who's had a long history in marine policing get in touch because it'd be really fascinating to hear all about that but yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? That that whole mm. world of um, a, a mate of mine, a good mate of mine, um, fancied that as well, and a bit like you, he did an attachment, and then he came away and said, "Oh no, definitely not. You know, it's not what I thought it was going to be." You know. So. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's 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 an important capability for the for the police to have, especially the Met Police and but but you know it's horses for courses really um that there were there are a lot of people that i worked with on there who were you know fantastic people you know i've got nothing bad to say against them but Hmm. in relation to actual police work that was or or proactive police work should i say Hmm. um the experiences were few and far between
0: is it Um, like dpg on a
1: book a bit like that yeah (laughs)
0: it makes me laugh again. Apologies because I know I've slagged off DPG because of all the win cousins and David Carrick thing, you know. But I uh, I do make does make me roll my eyes when I see DPG referred to as uh, as the elite DPG. You know, it's just like oh god. Well, I mean
1: the the amount of times I've said to people who you know people from outside with the police who say oh they're all on that same specialist unit and I would say DPG is not. Specialist unit, <laughs> or, or certainly not a de facto specialist unit. And yeah, well, well, I think we used to call it doors, posts,
0: and gates (DPG) because that's right. Yeah, they would they would just stand around. In the and, day, yeah. it was one of those places that people went to study for exams, wasn't it? Absolutely, it was. Absolutely,
1: it was. Um, and I think, yeah, the only, I mean, the only benefit that generally people would get from being on the DPG, I knew a couple of people that went there purely to get their firearms qualifications, and mm. then potentially move on to so 19 or whatever it's called now yeah, yeah. um and, and do something like that but otherwise yeah it was you know almost almost dead man's shoes in a way anyway um,
0: anyway now that we've completely alienated everyone on the dpg as we well you, as DPG. everyone on the marine <laughs> <laughs> support unit let's move on to your career so once you've once you finished that where did you go uh i worked on uh i went back to
1: central london i worked on um the hotel crime unit which was a very specialist it wasn't specialist at all it was a unique unit should we say uh, yeah an elite <laughs> well, we, weirdly i mean there was only two of us there was me and a detective sergeant who's a really good egg um and we used to this was back when um the cps had just started taking responsibility for, for um, making charging decisions as opposed to the custody officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we sort of created these relationships with these Crown prosecutors that we would go uh, go and speak to to get our prisoners charged. And we would introduce ourselves as officers from the elite hotel <laughs> crime unit <laughs> because no one no one had ever heard of us. And, and, and lots of you, can these...
0: say, you can say what you like,
1: can't you? Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I worked there for maybe four years or so Uh, And then I worked on a uh, divisional drug squad uh, or drugs intelligence unit, um, and then went to uh, a specialist um, CHIS uh, unit at Scotland Yard called the Source Development Unit, um, and finished my career with a very short six-month stint um, as a full-time UC at Scotland Yard, um, and, and made because of because of a sort of a, a juxtaposition of many different circumstances in my life, mm. I made the decision to to leave um, in 2011 after right. 16 years.
0: Oh, right. That must have been a, I mean, given that you were in a very sort of specialist, covert kind of role, that must have been quite a tough decision to make. Or I don't know, maybe it wasn't.
1: I mean, yeah, it was a very tough decision to make. I mean, I spent uh, since two thousand and one, I spent my uh, my time doing various covert roles, firstly as a test purchase officer, and then as a part time UC. Mm -hmm. Um, So I spent a good, you know, ten years, as well as my day job, doing doing uh, covert uh, covert Mm -hmm. work as well. Um, And I think, yeah, it was a, a lot of times um the 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 amount of work and the requirements of the work just becomes far too much. Mm. Um, and the, the, I mean, the reality is is i was I was very uh, naive, perhaps maybe that's too strong a word, but that sort of work is definitely for some people mm. um and not for others. And I fall into the, the the not for others category to be on, even though I did it for 10 years and I loved yeah. it and I learned yeah. some great stuff, met some fantastic people, had a great time doing it. It was, you know, it, it was not really, uh, my, mm. my comfort zone in that respect.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. No, I think, um, you know, in life a wise man and woman knows their limits, their strengths and weaknesses, don't they? And, so yeah. I, I can think of jobs that I was in during a 30 year career that I was really, really good at and, and, yeah. and, and highly respected that and all of those things. And then other jobs that I probably wasn't, you know, and yeah. um, and I probably knew that deep down. So you, you kind of move sideways back into a role that is more suited to your skills and abilities and experience. But um, so in terms of your undercover work as a test purchaser, was that all around drugs? Uh, it
1: was mainly around drugs yeah um so low level street drug supply um i mean i i still live in london and i'm i'm i almost map london in my head by virtue of places where i bought drugs i mean mm. it would be very very often i'll be driving down the road or or walking down the road and think sure i bought drugs there so you know you do as a test purchase officer as a busy test purchase officer you're almost constantly constantly working but um, we did uh, robbery decoy operations as well where you posed as a, a potential victim of a robbery right. um, and I, I in fact did get robbed once um, on a robbery decoy operation which was a bit hairy quite a, risky, um,
0: uh, quite a risky job isn't it
2: yeah I
1: mean but then you know it's incumbent upon you to satisfy yourself that all of the relevant measures are in place to you right. know to protect you and you have to have a lot of faith in your colleagues mm. who, who you wouldn't have worked worked with in the past necessarily mm. um so yeah there's a there's a lot of faith involved that's it's for sure, just, for, just
0: for, for people listening who maybe don't understand what that means so basically that's going into an area that is very sort of much of a hot spot currently for that type of offending and then flashing expensive jewelry or uh mobile phones or whatever is that kind of it
1: Effectively, yeah. I mean there would have to be significant justification for mounting such an operation, i.e. Uh, um, very, very credible intelligence about a specific location and a specific individual or group of individuals who are suspected of committing offences in the area. It wouldn't be just a you know, a fishing, fishing expedition. No, no. Um those those sorts of decoy operations are very, very targeted. Um but yeah, effectively that, that's what it is and you you, you put yourself on the you know on the line as it were as bait uh oh.
0: for uh to, to be robbed um essentially yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, it, and did yeah. you have any any sort of um near misses or close calls doing either the test purchase work or or that type of decoy work did you have any sort of moments where you thought i'm seriously at risk of coming to serious harm here
1: well i mean there's the, certainly the decoy operation where i got robbed uh in in greenwich um, absolutely, I thought you know the incident happened right on the banks of the River Thames. It was a small gang of five five lads um, who had been committing offences with impunity. It would appear for the previous sort of five or six weeks in the same area, um, and they they assaulted me, punched me a couple of times, pushed me up against the railings next to the river, and I thought they're going to chuck me in the river. Mm. Um, but luckily, uh, luckily, the arrest team intervened uh or certainly the three the three police dogs intervened very quickly mm-hmm. from the arrest team, which was good to see. Um but, but and doing pet test purchase work, I mean it's it's pretty standard for uh your your targets or, or the, the suspected offenders to to question you, to ask you if you're a police officer, all that sort of stuff. Um but nothing, you know, nothing that was not manageable, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Yeah. Um but, but that, I mean, the fact that that never it, there was never any significant danger in that respect doesn't, however, eliminate the fact that you do you do feel like you're in a dangerous situation, and you do get nervous, and you do get scared, and you do get worried. So yeah, yeah, um, that 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 sensation is still there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So when you uh, went into more of a a, a level. Did you go from a level two, you see, then into level one? Is that yeah, but okay. as it was back in the day, yeah. So level one being people like Joe Carter and Shay Shay Doyle, who we had on previously. Um, what was your particular area of? Because everyone has a bit of a an area of specialism, don't they? So they were very much around infiltrating serious and organised crime because they looked like gangsters and they signed like gangsters. what was your kind of if if you're happy to talk a little bit about that
1: i mean i didn't uh, you know i found it very difficult to fit into that world to be honest with you um there was a general expectation that the vast majority of ucs would be of that ilk i.e southeast london gangster types meeting in pubs and all that sort of stuff and that's not you know that's not really me and lots of the operations that i did uh, did did involve having to become that sort of person and it wasn't someone that I, uh, it wasn't something that i was necessarily comfortable with mm. but, i mean effectively my background was uh, sort of pseudo pseudo eastern european um mm. so i had a you know a a legend which spoke to uh, a, a history linked with eastern europe um and that was only because i i i spoke russian Um, and i needed i needed to have a credible reason why i spoke russian without me being russian if that makes sense yeah so um as as you do you create an entire persona for yourself um and um i i I like i i i think i like to think that the persona that is created not just by me but by everybody is something that can be adapted and fit into most most situations where yeah. uh where where some sort of infiltration is is required
0: mm-hmm. yeah no it's interesting because uh i think in a previous podcast i talked about the shittest holiday i ever had which was many years ago when i was in my sort of mid early 30s or whatever uh and i, I let myself be talked into going to puerto Bonus, which is near Marbella um for a week with a, a bunch of guys and it was yeah frigging nightmare it was like, <laughs> it was like the worst way. I know I ended up coming home early because it's basically like an open prison I, mean, I, don't ever, yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to Port Benoos but it's just wall-to-wall criminality serious yeah. criminality and I was the only cop on that holiday and the rest of them were blissfully unaware of what was going on around them but I could see very clearly what was going on and yeah. uh, it was fascinating to sort of sit and watch the interactions between these villains in bars and nightclubs and and yeah you're right there's there's people there who very clearly fit the profile of uh heavies heavy duty thugs and um, but equally yeah. there are people who look like you you know who are yeah. probably more of this kind of maybe the thinkers so to speak and well uh, i mean yeah i mean
1: i you know ironically that's that's sort of how i was uh perceived by lots of my my colleagues in that environment um as you know one of the you know one of the thinkers i was referred to as a posh boy quite regularly um Mm. in in good in good jest i hasten to add Mm -hmm. um i I certainly wasn't offended by any of it Uh, but there what there was this sort of perception generally amongst that community that there was a requirement to be this sort of you know cockney cockney gangster type um Mm. and and i mean Lots of the work that I did as a UC, in fact, weren't around, uh, uh, you know, gangster groups or or uh, particular um, east or south London networks or anything like that. There, I, I got involved in some really creative UC UC work, um, hmm. which wasn't necessarily targeting your typical organised criminal group um mm, and mm. you know crime is 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 very or criminality is very diverse um especially in london and and there shouldn't be this sort of perception that that we might be limited only to targeting you know mm. the famous crime
0: families or
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, or, or things like that yeah. well particularly the case now isn't it with the massive impact of online offending Yeah, and particularly around cybercrime and online fraud and all of these types of activities, and I can definitely see how there will be an urgent need to bring in people who are both credible UCs, whether that's online UCs or face-to-face UCs, uh, who also have quite a deep technical understanding of, of how all of this stuff works, so yeah, fascinating. And Again, shy tight. If there's anybody out there who's done that type of work, maybe on the in the online world rather than the offline world, then get in touch and let's have a chat because that would be interesting to to know how that all works. I mean, I kind of know how it works, but it'd be interesting to hear it from the horse's mouth. So, um, so you obviously got to a point where, for a variety of of reasons, you decided that enough was enough with policing. Um, when you left. Did you have a job teed up to go to immediately?
1: Yeah, I had a job uh, teed up, um, which was working for a big uh, global uh, sports firm. Um, it's um, It was a job looking at um, uh, counterfeit goods. So brand, brand protection, I think, was the official job title. Right. Um, and I mean, this is where I, I spent probably a period of maybe four or five years almost in limbo to be honest with you because coming from coming from an environment like the police and then going directly into the private sector is a such a huge transition uh-huh. um, and it's and it's you know with the best will in the world it's not something that you can do overnight um, and it takes a lot of time to you know to become used to how things work Uh, in the real world as I call it
2: Um,
1: and it's very 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 different Um, once you've spent a a certain amount of time so for me it was 16 years in an environment where everything is structured all of your friends are in the same job you speak about the same things you do the Mm -hmm. same you know you have the same philosophies being exposed to a to an alternative environment was really uh, difficult to Come to terms with and difficult mm. to deal with. To be honest with you, mm.
0: um, so the counterfeit, think... counterfeiting side of things clearly was a strong link into your past, in the sense that yeah. you're presumably trying to understand what those yeah. net, what those networks, what those distribution networks look like, who the individuals are, you know, what offences have been committed, and how you can then presumably enforce. Against those individuals, so that's kind of it, I imagine. Absolutely,
1: yeah. I mean, from a from a policing perspective or from an investigative perspective, it, you know, that I had no issues whatsoever. That's you know, mm. in, in fact, policing obviously gives you a significant advantage over uh, over other people in being mm. able to fulfil the requirements of that sort of role. Mm. Um, and that part of the job it was was absolutely no problem whatsoever. That was fine. Mm. Um, um, but you're not in you're not in the same sort of police environment and you have to you have Mm. to adapt and and understand how commercial environments work and latterly how in NGO environments work Um, so it was it was it was challenging in that respect but yes you know my my job entailed liaising with third party uh, investigators um, to make sure that investigations into counterfeiting or counterfeit trafficking networks were mm. uh were conducted properly mm-hmm. and as fully as possible which was yeah. which was
0: fine and just out of curiosity did you have a contact within that organization whilst you were still serving that sort of led to that job or did you apply for that whilst in the police
1: i applied for it whilst in the police uh and again it was one of these jobs that took sort of two years to come to fruition so i applied for it you know Probably eighteen months, two years before I actually left the job, mm. um, and the process t- took so long. Um, yeah. in, in fact, to be honest with you, when I got the phone call set offering me the job, I'd almost forgotten about having applied for it. Mm.
0: Um, yeah, I think what you've just said there is is really important uh, because there's an awful lot of people who, as you know, are and I disenchanted with the way policing has has gone and the pay and the the sort of conditions and the pensions and everything and are actively now thinking about leaving or have left uh, to, for other jobs uh, in the private sector and there's a lot of people out there and i've interviewed uh, a few of them on the, this podcast who who are doing a lot of that stuff around police resettlement and yeah. um giving people an insight into what their CVs need to look like and how they need to yeah. present themselves and all of this kind of stuff, and, and the work that they're doing is is really, really important and I think they're doing a great job, but, and there is a but here, is that people who are leaving the police, as you've just said, need to, to go out into that world with their eyes open, understanding that it it bears almost no relation to policing whatsoever. I mean, many yeah. of the skills that they have that they're bringing into those jobs are incredibly valuable, but the culture and the way things are done in the private sector is completely different to policing, isn't
1: it? It's absolutely different. and And I think that's the key to you know some of the people you allude to are helping police officers resettle in the private sector. one of their one of their key uh, their key pointers is is the capacity to, Uh, sell yourself and make this make the skills that you've learned in the police relatable to potential employers Mm. Um, and I you know I get involved in uh, recruiting people for the organization I work for at the moment and very often it's you know we we look for people with either a law enforcement or or intelligence related background Mm. Um, and so often I see CVs and cover letters that effectively list You know, police skills, you know, level two public order trained or chis handler trained or which mean that they mean things to me, but they don't mean anything to the six other people that work for my organization who are on the recruitment panel. Um, And it's it's a case of of being able to uh, explain. I mean, it's lovely to have a list of courses and skills. That's fantastic. But, Mm. you know, potential employers, especially in the private sector. I mean, the reality is they they really don't care. Yeah, um, yeah. And excuse my French. Lots of employers could not give a shit how many yeah. courses you've done. But that's the reality. <laughs> yeah, and that's in, true. In in the job, you know, you might be the most highly skilled individual on the planet, but yeah. outside of the job, it means absolutely bugger all. And it's yeah. really important to to try and understand that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so you spent some time with this big um sports company. Yeah, um, and. Uh, did you go straight into the wildlife side of things after that or was there a sort of a no, stepping, I, stepping stone between that
1: i had a couple of other jobs in between um i had you know i, I had a tumultuous uh personal life shall i say for the sort of next three or four years
0: What well, never uh, a, police, a police officer, next police yeah, officer you know having I mean? a tumultuous personal life I just, that's I, I can't believe I feel, that. i feel like a walking cliche
1: sometimes <laughs> um <laughs> um, but I mean, eventually, in you know, in in 2016, um, I got contacted by um, a, an intelligence analyst that I used to work with at West End Central. Um, she contacted me on LinkedIn completely at random, and she uh, then works for Interpol, based in Lyon in France. And right. she said, "Hey, hey, Christian, how you doing? If you're after some work, we've got a job at Interpol that I think you might be good for." Right. So. It was for a criminal intelligence officer, which is a very grand sounding title, uh, mm. based in Nairobi, looking at rhino horn and ivory trafficking uh, oh, across wow. Eastern Africa. Um, and I thought, oh yeah, okay, I'll, I'll have a go at that. Um, and there was uh, there was also a requirement for that job, I seem to remember, to be able to speak French. And I speak French very well. Um, oh. And so I applied for it. I had lots of conversations and interviews, etc. And eventually, I was, you know, I was told I was successful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and in January 2016, uh, I flew to uh, Lyon in France for a couple of weeks to do some training and uh, um, onboarding, as they call it.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: then and then flew to Nairobi um, for a, wow. a short a short term contract, and I lived in Nairobi for nine months working with. uh the interpol um regional bureau in nairobi and various other interpol offices across eastern africa
0: wow what Um, what an adventure
1: so i mean and this was a a type of crime that i had i wasn't really aware of to be honest i mean i'd heard bits and bobs about ivory trafficking and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing i had no idea about the extent of, of this type of crime or the extent of the illegal wildlife trade, how impactive it is, uh, how profitable it is for criminals. I had no idea Mm -hmm. Um, because I always, I always harked back to training at Hendon. And I distinctly remember being sat in the lecture theater at Hendon for an input on wildlife crime. Yeah, and it was. To do, I think it was to do with like the Badger Act or yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. But I remember absolutely nobody was paying any attention to what this wildlife crime officer was was saying, and we sort of dismiss it as yeah, that's irrelevant. I want to do the sexy, glamorous stuff. I want to yeah. smash doors in and get drug dealers, and mm. and that attitude internationally still persists today in relation really. to the illegal wildlife trade yeah I and mean, things are changing very slowly
0: when but... you say that attitude do you mean uh, uh, that attitude amongst uk law enforcement or just across <laughs> law enforcement everywhere no across law
1: enforcement so i mean as an example i spent uh some time in nigeria last year with the nigeria Customs service who are fantastic they're, they're very good at what they do but their their attitude is almost you know wholeheartedly focused on um combating uh human trafficking drug supply and and potential terrorism right. uh, and any anything outside of that is either deemed to be not particularly important or the remit of another agency um, and 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 that's because it's it's you know when you say to someone wildlife crime you know people think well humans aren't getting harmed by that you know nobody's in any danger if mm, mm. someone shoots an elephant and
0: and takes its task or whatever it might be so so that first job that you were doing let's just uh, dive into that then so you where were you actually were you based in what the british embassy or somewhere like that or you No, based i was
1: based i was based in the interpol regional bureau which is at the cid headquarters of the kenyan police in nairobi right. uh, just outside the city center
0: had you, had you um, ever been to africa before
1: never first time i'd ever been to africa i arrived there with you know open eyes and fully, you know, fully embracing of everything. Taking it all in, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, as to, to all intents and purposes, I mean, Nairobi, as it stands, is is a fairly sort of sophisticated city. Um, and, you know, it, it was an experience, that's for sure. But I I treated it as if it was any other major capital city. You know, I, mm-hmm. I you know I got there, I hired a car, I drove around, I got lost, and I didn't really understand potentially the slightly different context of working in uh working on the african continent yeah. um where where things are a lot more um fragile potentially
0: right. um yeah and, you could uh, potentially wander into the wrong place yeah and, and be uh, yeah. quite seriously at risk couldn't you if you don't know what you're uh, doing
1: i mean potentially potentially i mean in in nairobi people you know people would generally be aware of you um i mean I, I was very often i'd be driving in nairobi and i use that in the loosest sense of the word because the traffic jams are horrendous mm-hmm. uh, i'd be driving in nairobi and lots of people would say to me don't if you're going to go down that road you know they'd pull up beside me and say if you're going to go down that road make sure you wind your window up because there's there's robbers down there or there's bandits down there or right. you know people would generally be mm-hmm. quite sort of aware of uh, of trying to help you out, um, but and what was your was,
0: what was your impression, initial impression, or, or for that matter, your ongoing impression of the the Kenyan police? What was the, what was the was it very different to? I mean, um, UK my, law my, enforcement. Yeah, it's
1: very different, absolutely very different. um And I see this across, you know, in all of the countries that I've worked in with the law enforcement agencies. Uh, I can pick individual officers that I've worked with who are you know, 100% competent, fantastic uh, police officers. Very proactive, very enthusiastic. They know their onions, they know their law, they know their powers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But as organisations, you know, often very ineffectual. Um, I mean, I have, you know, I could I could tell you plenty of ridiculous ridiculous tales just off the top of my head from from Kenya. I mean, things like forensic awareness was or you know in reality almost almost zero like things weren't necessarily complied with even though you mm. know that they they had processes and protocols they'd had training they had kit and equipment to uh uh, uh to forensic crime scenes effectively but it wasn't necessarily done to the required standard mm. um i remember a an activist was shot in nairobi whilst i was whilst I was there. Uh, he was in his car, <clears throat> and his car got riddled with bullets. And then the next day, I arrived at work um, in the massive car park outside the CID headquarters, and this dude's shot-up car was just in the car park. They'd just dumped it in the car park, um, uh, and th- there didn't appear to have been any work done on it. You know, yeah. in, in, little things like that. Yeah, well, um, I can
0: I, I I can remember having conversations with colleagues who had gone out to certain let's say, under or undeveloped countries to support investigation into terrorist attacks out there causing, you know, scores of deaths and bodies had literally been bulldozed mm-hmm. with with rubble into a corner of a yard somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Or, or just thrown in a skip. Uh, and And it would just be a horrific job to try and, it makes sense of that from a forensic point of view it was just a completely different mindset in terms of managing a crime scene isn't
1: it it is a very different mindset um and i don't to be honest i don't think that's the fault of individual officers um i think there is a there is a there is a big culture of uh of of hierarchical structure within law enforcement agencies in in africa certainly and, and probably elsewhere whereby if you put yourself in the position as a, of a, I don't know, a PC on the beat in the UK, um, and they come across uh, a burglary scene, for example, with smashed glass everywhere, and there's a there's a glove on the floor and some blood, and you know that PC is is autonomous and takes a decision. Right, I'm going to preserve this crime scene. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas my experience in in lots of African nations is that that autonomy or that decision-making capability isn't is either not encouraged or just isn't simply part it's not part of the mm. the culture as it were mm. Mm. Um, and it will always be deferred to somebody above um and you know by the time it gets to a decision maker which is very often two or three ranks above the mm. guy that's on the scene mm-hmm. then any any opportunities are very often lost or you yeah. know some somebody else will come along and say yeah just just sweep it all up and who cares that yeah. sort of
0: thing yeah 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 um, so interpol then that's an interesting organization and i know i know steve kavanagh who's now the director general of interpol yeah. I believe. um yeah he was the ex-chief Constable of essex wasn't he and um yeah it's a. It's got a funny sort of. It's a funny sort of organization, isn't it? In, in, <laughs> it is. In, in that it doesn't have any. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it doesn't have any executive powers, does it? So, None whatsoever. So they all they are is a. It feels like a coordination. Uh, you know, capability to bring together those different yeah. agencies across the world. Uh, what we are. What we are in in, in sort of early impressions of interpol as 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 you were actually working for them
1: well i mean i didn't i didn't go into it blind i did and i certainly didn't expect that you would go into interpol and have you know jurisdiction over the whole world and be you know jetting around yeah interpol like you say interpol is, is not a de facto police agency and has no executive powers at all however uh, most countries in the world are members of interpol so they um that, that they sign up to be part of uh, of interpol and they pay a, you know, a subscription fee as it were um and what interpol does is i mean i describe it to people as a bulletin board essentially it's mm-hmm. a bulletin board where one country can put information on the bulletin board and enable other countries to see that information um mm-hmm. and that's really really what it is um i mean i i think it it's a it's an organisation in my personal opinion uh it's an organisation that does not live up to its capabilities and does not exploit its potential at all um in what in what way um i mean i found lots of the things we did were were ineffective um because a lot of it is around what i would call pseudo diplomacy um where we would have meetings or forums or workshops with with other nations and it was really difficult to get any 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 actual movement or work done um through those mechanisms and i found it much easier um to get work done um by by me or or my team going to places and having face-to-face discussions with people and saying, right, well, let's go and do this now, being being a bit more proactive.
2: Um,
1: And that's not something that was encouraged, to be honest, by my hierarchy. Um, So I was, you know, I was very uh, into getting things done, um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to having a meeting and nothing happening. I've I've got no problems with meetings as long as something happens. Yeah. Um, And And my when I say they don't they, I, I don't think they exploit that capability is they've got a lot of they've got a lot of staff all around the world, um, most of whom are really dedicated um, and want to do good work.
0: And presumably um, they've got staff. the staff are from all over the world as well, I would assume. Yeah, I mean the staff
1: in the headquarters in Leon and the staff in the regional bureaus are from all over the place. And the staff in the national bureaus are generally seconded police officers from those countries. Nice. Um, so, but but yeah, they have a they have a wide you know diversity of, of staff from from all over the place. And what, you know, when if I say to a a random member of the public, I was a I was an intelligence officer for Interpol, mm. it's very very likely that in their head they'll be thinking, oh my god, that's amazing! You must have you know <laughs> gone around the world with your Interpol. Body armor and a gun and chased people and I mean and that's the image that or that's the perception potentially by the public and Interpol doesn't do enough to yeah exploit that image if that makes
0: sense. It's a really it's a funny one because when I was a when I was a DCI in in the intelligence department in the West mids we had a officer in the department who was kind of pretty much full time job was to manage the requests for information uh coming coming from interpol and as you know those requests can be literally anything yeah so so it could be um at the sexier end of the scale and this doesn't happen very often it'll be we believe this person who is wanted for murder in holland is currently in the uk yeah and we've got intelligence X Y Z to suggest that they may be associating with these people. We don't know where they currently are, but we would ask for your support in tracking them down and and arresting them. And and here is the international arrest warrant for their detention. Now that's the sexy end of the scale. And we would go, yeah, brilliant. This person is clearly uh, in the UK, and undesirable, wanted for murder, and we would allocate resources accordingly to go and track that person down and get them into custody. Yeah. But it wasn't all like that. A lot of it was bollocks. Yeah. And and, and it would be a, a police agency in France uh, looking to arrest someone who was wanted for the theft of a car tyre
2: mm.
0: who is now believed to be living in, um, you know, Birmingham or somewhere. Yeah. And we would have to then go back to Interpol and go. Listen, we don't even arrest our own people for <laughs> theft, theft of a car tire because we haven't got we haven't got the resources at the moment, thanks to Theresa May. Yeah. Um, so, can you please tell your French counterparts that we will be taking no further action? But they just wouldn't have it. And then I would have I would I would then get I would then have to get involved in a in a tedious backwards and forwards. Uh, to interpol saying it doesn't matter how many times you ask us to do this the answer will still be no always be no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) so it was a kind of a it was a weird one it was a weird collection of requests yeah Um, and and there didn't seem to to me to be a a filtering process no absolutely not at at their end to ensure (laughs) that that if you're going to be asking for police resources to do something it needs to reach a certain threshold you know what i mean yeah yeah that's right
1: no that i mean that absolutely makes sense um in fact in in our little team looking at rhino horn trafficking and ivory trafficking i did i insisted that any any uh, sort of international requests that, that we processed or that we got involved with came with a a sort of cogent operational plan and and some sort of justification as to why we needed to do this just Mm. to to avoid exactly that um and and that sort of prioritization process and uh, allowed us to target you know particular individuals who were sort of slightly higher end of the of the
0: trafficking chain um Mm. so let's talk about about your sort of actual job then so what was it what would a typical day look like in in that sort of role
1: uh arrive in the office, probably have a couple of meetings in my office. It was a very lavish office, I seem to remember, with a big gold plaque on the door with my name on, which mm-hmm. I I miss terribly. Um and then we I, I had a very small team of two or three officers, uh one of whom I had one one guy from Burundi, uh and one guy from Tanzania, um, and the guy from Tanzania, what what a fantastic police officer I would he's one of the very few people I would trust with my life uh, really? very 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 effective cop um, and so we would sit down together and look at uh, what our priorities were generally for that week um, and they would generally be focused on individuals or networks but mainly individuals um, who had been identified by other member countries as being involved in or suspected of being involved in uh big ivory trafficking cases Mm -hmm. um and then we'd work out how best to um how best to effect our objectives which would generally be to get people arrested charged and prosecuted i mean and we wouldn't be doing any of the arresting charging and prosecuting our Mm -hmm. job was to encourage other countries to do this if that makes sense so if we had a, a, a good example is a couple of guys that who were tanzanian Uh, who were wanted for offences in Malawi. Um, And so our job was to encourage the Tanzanians to arrest these guys Mm -hmm. uh, and extradite them or uh, enable their extradition back to Malawi and to encourage the Malawians to instigate Mm -hmm. the required processes to get them extradited when they were arrested. It was essentially facilitating communication. Um, But without our... Without that input, without those sort of kicks up the asses, as it were, mm-hmm. then it, it's difficult for those countries to to sort of
0: understand or, or adhere to those those processes. Right. Uh, so, just give us a flavour of the type that type of criminality. So, the people actually on the ground; these are organised poaching teams, I'm assuming. So there are the, the illegal
1: wildlife trade is very analogous to the drugs trade, mm. um, albeit not as organised as South American cartels, for example. Mm. But generally, you will get people who poach uh, animals at, at differing differing levels. Uh, Some will be organized poaching teams that will go out and target specific species like elephant or rhino. Some will just be run of the mill poachers who happen across a particular animal and know that it is valuable. But that's not their their objective. Nonetheless, the animal gets killed. And generally, if I take ivory as an example, because it's what everybody uh, is familiar with, Generally, the tusks will be removed um, dependent upon the circumstances. The meat will be removed and shipped off elsewhere or sold elsewhere, probably locally. But the tusks will be removed uh, and they will be sold to um, a a facilitator, for want of a better phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, And that facilitator will facilitate the movement of that ivory generally to a stockpile. There might be other uh steps involved prior to that but he will facilitate generally the movement of the ivory to a stockpile in country often very close to a port city and once a significant amount of contraband has been stockpiled mm. then uh, an intermediary who will be linked with these the destination country uh mm. will facilitate the movement of the ivory out of the country generally mm. through a seaport um and then that will go to southeast asia um stroke china uh where it will be then sold
0: on to uh, to consumers um uh, so this is a predominantly a southeast asian end point market is it yeah almost
1: all of the products illegal wildlife products that we deal with rhino horn ivory pangolin scales uh will end up in southeast asia or china
0: um and what happens to it there
1: so ivory is coveted in china especially as a status symbol um so there's a you know over the over the past 10 years it's been very clear there's a huge burgeoning middle class in china um mm. so having something made of ivory in your house is a is an indicator of status wealth you know you've made it um it's very instagrammable apparently um mm-hmm. having a carved ivory tusk um and there's there is huge demand for it um and rhino horn on the other hand and pangolin scales both substances made of of keratin the same as your hair and your nails mm-hmm. uh they are sold for use in uh traditional well not traditional chinese medicine just medicine so it is purported that for example rhino horn can cure cancer it can mm-hmm. cure covid it can cure aids it can make you last longer in bed everything mm-hmm. you know every possible uh, manifestation of of, of of medical advantage is attributed to to
0: rhino horn oh, um, god so depressing isn't it it's like so so in your role and your colleagues were all at that time. Were you going after who, which, which bit of the, ch- the sort of food chain, so to speak, were you going after? Were you going after the poachers? Are you going after the middlemen? I mean, who? What was your what was your sort of main target? I suppose
1: we were generally looking at the middlemen. So uh, you know, the, the the second or third step after the poaching has occurred. Right. Um, so these these are the people whose whose involvement is crucial within the source country. Uh, to to facilitate the movement of that product, um, and without them, you know the movement can't take place. These are individuals who uh, effectively own trafficking routes or transport routes. They have the means and resources to move product. They have the contacts within look corrupt contacts within law enforcement and other agencies to ensure that that product moves smoothly through checkpoints or borders or whatever it might be. They are the people that. Um, that that we're we were looking at and and indeed the sort of people that I still look at uh, today in my job because um, wow. there's a huge a huge intelligence gap around around so, it
0: so really very similar to what an, an earlier guest Ian Brighton was talking about the drugs trade this, yeah this cannot work without the mass corrupt behavior of multiple, oh, absolutely not of multiple people through multiple steps of the process can it
1: absolutely not. um they, I mean c- corruption bribery is is essential to most criminal trade i would suggest um and, and certainly uh, more so in in the illegal wildlife trade um because there is you know the, the the profits that can be made from from trafficking particular types of wildlife can be quite significant um and and i i think and this is just a you know a personal assumption i think officers who are corruptly involved in facilitating illegal wildlife shipments tends to be more comfortable being corrupt in that respect because it's not drugs and it's not guns and it's not you yes. know what i mean there's no there's yeah. no perceived harm to humans yeah. so yeah, yeah, therefore yeah,
0: they just don't see that they just don't see that it's a big deal at all yeah really. yeah Gosh. absolutely And would you say? I mean, we'll come on to talk about the other things that you did since Interpol. But would you say that, as we sit here today, that things are getting better in terms of the impact of wildlife crime, or are they getting worse?
1: Uh, At a very low level, so the poaching level, which is not something I've, I've ever been sort of explicitly involved with, to be honest. But at that level, so protection, that protection level things are improving quite significantly um so you know animals are, are generally better protected by humans than than they have been
0: right um, and why do you think what, that is
1: uh well huge investment in you know <laughs> getting getting third-party consultants to come and train wildlife rangers who who are the real you know the real front line against this mm. uh, against this crime um their 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 levels of competence skills dedication has increased incredibly even since i started in this game in 2016 um i've seen uh you know a a fairly significant drop in poaching events um, of some of the iconic species in most of the countries in africa um so at that level, I think we do very well. So it's not level... because
0: it's not because the appetite for the product is any less. It's because we're just better at protecting the animals. Ian, the appetite for the product is still
1: there, which which is where you know we have this gap in our in our knowledge in the trafficking chain because mm. we still we we still see big seizures. We still see people being arrested in possession of ivory or whatever product it might be. Yeah. The demand is still there. Um, but, you know lots of there is an issue around uh, government stockpiles of this this sort of product, um, where where product leaks from these government stockpiles and is entered back into the uh, into the chain.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, we see seizures fairly regularly, which have old government markings on them, indicating they were
0: seized some time hence. Um, right. So the demand is still there. Right. Um, and what oh, does the law that. what does the law say about all of this in in the UK? So, I mean, obviously, there was a time, wasn't there, when uh, Colonel Buffton Tufton would have his <laughs> elef- elephant's head on the wall of his stately home, or there'd be ivory tusks or whatever adorning their their homes. What what is what does the law say about all of this now? Because I've got no clue. Certainly,
1: in the UK, uh, ivory uh, which is uh, w- which comes from after a certain time period. I think it's after, no, I'm going to get castigated for this, so I should know it. I think it's after 1967 or something. Right. Um, ivory, which uh, comes from after that time period, is, is, is unlawful to possess. The ivory pre that period is perfectly lawful
0: to possess. How, would you, how on earth would you know? What Car- carbon dating,
1: right? Uh, or some sort of uh, you know credible uh, credible uh, document of provenance or something okay. like that. Yeah. Um, I mean one of the, one of the issues that doesn't happen too often, but I have seen it before is uh, is individuals laundering recent ivory uh, and masquerading it as pre. Yeah. Uh, Uh, pre-1960 whatever it is ivory Mm, Um, that doesn't happen too often but I mean uh, ivory and lots of other uh, animal parts are are protected by international conventions uh, most particularly the convention on uh, international trade on endangered uh, species of flora and fauna otherwise known as phytes Mm -hmm. which is a trade convention signed by virtually every country in the world Mm -hmm. um, which which uh, says that they will establish domestic laws to protect uh, particular species, well, hundreds and hundreds of different species, to be honest.
0: So these uh, people that occasionally you see on social media that you, they get absolutely lambasted. Don't they? Occasionally, you'll yeah. see you'll see some picture of some some rich twat um, who's who's been helicoptered out into some game reserve somewhere, standing with their foot on a beautiful beast that they've shot as for sport and presumably paid a shitload of money for the privilege is that that stuff is presumably still going on though isn't it
1: yeah absolutely certainly in southern Africa um and some parts of eastern Africa these game reserves where you, you know you can buy you can effectively buy a lion or buy a zebra or buy uh, whatever animal it is um yeah that's that still goes on um, and it's done, you know, I have my own personal views about it and I, and I don't agree with it, but it's done under the auspices of, of you know, conservation, um, bizarrely, um, i.e. that, you know, the money, the money that is obtained from that sort of activity goes to fund, uh, conservation efforts in that area or within that game reserve or within that park, um, or, it's to, you know, that those animals are specifically, uh, um, put in those game reserves and bred and nurtured for uh to be killed essentially um you know i don't i don't agree with it i think it's a very clear example of somebody you know trying to make up for having a a small yeah. appendage or something
0: <laughs> yeah definitely it's, uh, definitely uh i mean it's just uh i don't i just don't get it i just don't get it at all but, uh, so when you when you finished that job how long were you in kenya for
1: I was only there for nine months. It was a, a short-term contract, um, but what it did do was open a, a whole new world uh, for me, mm-hmm. which was which was very nice. And I went straight from Interpol to work for a British conservation organization called the Zoological Society of London, aka London Zoo, um, oh, right, who right. have a, who have about fifty conservation projects around the world. Uh, at, you know, the, the, which are funded by London
0: Zoo. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting, an interesting one in itself, isn't it? Because yeah. a, a lot of people would say that they don't like the whole concept of a zoo, period. Do they? You know, absolutely. And and yet, um, London Zoo themselves are clearly funding a lot of really good work out in the. I mean, is yeah. that is that is that? I'm trying to think how to say this without sounding clumsy. But do you think they're doing that in order to offset? the controversy about the very fact that they have a zoo or is it because they are genuinely invested in conservation
1: no they're absolutely genuinely invested in conservation i have no i have no qualms about that whatsoever um london zoo has come a long way you know since it was opened in victorian times and had all sorts of weird wild and wonderful creatures in there um it's it's very very conservation centric now i mean there are no you know there are no um no species that are held at london zoo that would give any any cause for conservation concern um and it's a really useful tool to educate people about protected species endangered species and and the you know the aims of a conservation organization um and you know it was it was sometimes frustrating working there because everybody i used to say i work for the zoological society of london they go oh london zoo and but but it's it's much much more than that you know i i I hardly ever went to london zoo whilst i was there um you know they the, the the countries where where they have projects are really quite challenging places Um, And and working for them, again, it was another eye-opening experience because I was exposed to places that I hadn't been exposed to at Interpol. At Interpol, I would say I was exposed to uh, Africa light, so Eastern Eastern Mm -hmm. Africa. Uh, Mm -hmm. And at ZSL, I was exposed much more to sort of Central and West Africa, and I was spending a lot of time in places like Cameroon, um, which is an incredibly challenging country
0: to work in. Wow. For, for for lots of lots of different reasons. Wow. Um, and were you um, spending sort of extended periods of time in these countries?
1: Uh, as as little
0: time as I could. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, uh, otherwise, my my wife would get annoyed. Um,
0: no, so I spend just on just on just on that. It's presumably, you talked about how your life was in something of a period of turmoil before going to Kenya. Um, I'm assuming from what you just said there that things kind of then settle down somewhat.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, my my wife came with me. I'd only very recently met her before I went to Kenya. She came oh. with me to Kenya. Um, and yeah, we've been, been together for Eight years now. Got married a couple of years ago. So yes, everything, everything on that front is uh, <laughs> good. Is quite magnificent, which good. is nice. <laughs>
0: but
1: nice. yeah, she doesn't. She, she's not a big fan of me going, uh, going overseas for uh, any sort of great length of time. But I would spend generally, you know, fourteen days to three weeks in in these places, and it was yeah, like I say, a huge eye opener. Because so I was mm-hmm. spending time in very, very, very isolated places
0: right um in in, presumably potentially quite dangerous as well isn't it if you're talking yeah i I tend to talking about i mean these people are making for them quite a lot of money aren't they and then you are the person who's trying to stop them aren't you
1: yeah yeah and you tend to sort of brush over that whilst you're there but then retrospectively you think uh yeah that was that, that could have been a bit a bit hairy i mean you you know i mean let's not make any bones about it i'm a white guy going to the, uh, the far reaches of of a you know a dusty border town in cameroon mm. um you know where, where like where life is cheap yeah. yeah i'm the only white guy there people are going to be saying what the frig is he doing here you know yeah yeah, um, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: i've been you know on many occasions with zsl and with my current organization i've been um detained in inverted commas uh, at border
0: crossings and river crossings and
2: yeah
0: um, been been spoken to trigger happy border guards with rusty AK47s i mean what could possibly go wrong
1: what could possibly go wrong it's it's all fine <laughs> <laughs> but these all of these experiences are you know that they I don't want to say they're, they're it's character building. They're, mm-hmm. No, they're they're all part of a they're all part of this sort of learning process and this tapestry that makes you understand and appreciate things out, outside of the police. To be honest with you, yeah, yeah, it's, it's,
0: it's interesting to be in that position and to learn from those experiences. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, when you were working for Interpol, you were there very much in terms of a law enforcement role, yeah. albeit sort of maybe two or three steps sort of. Uh, steps uh, separated from the, the the kind of pointy bit of law yeah. enforcement, but in these more recent roles, what is it? What is your kind of main job then? Is it to support conservation projects?
1: Yeah, generally it's to support, or certainly ostensibly, to support conservation projects by making sure. Well, firstly, it's it's supporting any law enforcement agencies within the country that we work with. Mm. Um, and that's often done by providing training or gui- guidance or support in some way, shape, or form. Um, it's it's effectively maintaining maintaining a liaison with them and, and maintaining communication with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, in line with whatever project objectives we might have, trying to uh, trying to instigate activities which might impact on the illegal wildlife trade within the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, of the project. Um and that could take many, many different forms. Mm. Um, you know, there are many. But, but what what is important to realise, I mean, you you articulated it quite well there. With Interpol, I could walk go anywhere and say I'm Christian from Interpol. And mm. generally that would elicit some sort of cooperation. Mm. Whereas now mm. I say I'm Christian from this NGO and people go, yeah, and so what? You know. What does
2: mm-hmm.
1: that mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a bit, a bit more challenging to, to get things done, but mm-hmm. but it's yeah. also refreshing to to be in that position.
0: And culturally, given that you you described the culture shock of moving from policing to the private sector, what generally speaking has been your impressions of working as part of an NGO compared to policing or the private sector, for that matter? Um, working
1: i think my experience in policing affects the way that i the way that i deal with things and it still does so i mean in in policing lots of decisions that you make are time critical lots of decisions you make are mission critical and lots of decisions you make might be life changing
2: mm. for
1: not necessarily for you but for other people um and that's not necessarily the case in an ngo and it's t- and it's taken a lot of time to become used to the fact that i i don't have to make I don't, or i don't often have to make decisions in a you know in short order and i can sit back and i can take my time and i can reflect and i can analyse and i can evaluate mm-hmm. at my leisure almost mm-hmm. now, i don't want it to i don't want to make it sound like i'm you know not doing yeah. anything all day yeah. but mm-hmm. I, I get I the opportunity to do that And I also get the opportunity to discuss things and to discuss projects, to discuss ideas, to go through decision making processes with other people who do not have my background. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get to discuss things with, you know, with academics, with biologists, with conservationists, and they all have a totally different take on life, on the world, on how things should be done. Mm -hmm. And whilst that might not be the way I would do things, it's Mm -hmm. still really important to hear those views. Yeah. To take take them on board because you never know, you know mm. some twenty two year old PhD student might have a much better idea than than you, yeah. um, and so why shouldn't you be taking taking their their yeah. viewpoints on board?
0: Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a tricky one because it, it's very similar to as you got the like, as you got the greasy pole and policing, you end up having to deal with a lot of partner agencies who yeah. have got a very different perspective on on things to policing i suppose the downside of that i find was that very often you'll get a lot of very intelligent people in the room who've got those different perspectives but ultimately someone at some point in time is going to have to do something yes and and that's the the bit where i think policing is incredibly good because i've i've sat in an awful lot of meetings with partner agencies where uh with pontificated on a particular issue and no one has actually made a decision as to what we're going to do next
1: you know you're you're absolutely right and that's that's exactly where that's exactly where you nail that important policing skill on the head and that is decision making
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and that's something that i you know i i'm involved in that on a very regular basis and people will often or, maybe not overtly but people will often um wait for me to make a decision about mm. something and i'm very happy to do that mm. one of the things that one of the advantages i have about having this period of reflection and ability to discuss is that i can really uh, uh, clearly articulate my decision-making processes mm. um and for a for an ngo uh who is involved in what could potentially be perceived as law enforcement activities it's really important for me uh, and for the organization that we're transparent so mm, having mm. having that capability to articulate my rationale is yeah. really uh, really crucial yeah, um, yeah but that's a that's a really important policing skill yeah that is transferable to almost every other industry imaginable
0: yeah um, well it's incredibly important in the environments that you're working in isn't it because the, the law enforcement agencies that you're going to be working with in a lot of those countries do not have the same ethical dilemmas mm-hmm. that, that we have in the UK around how we do things. And on that basis, you've got to be careful about being too closely associated with law enforcement yeah. in some of those countries. Yeah, uh, And probably, I would imagine, have to work very hard to be seen to be uh, independent honest brokers in in all of this absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely sometimes sometimes
1: and you know that's something that you have to consider almost on a daily basis um is is your your perceived proximity to certain organizations or certain agencies mm-hmm. um in in particular countries uh lots of the countries i work in they are on a you know they are they are very fragile, <laughs> fragile economically politically um, so lots of things sort of hang on a knife edge and uh, I mean the organization I work for at the moment is very big and very well known in lots of the countries that it works in um, and one wrong perception by a state uh, mm-hmm. a state agency uh, or, or or an agency from another country who doesn't like the country we're working in could have a huge a huge effect on our work on our status yeah. on our presence even in particular countries and it's really important to take that into consideration um it's yeah it's something something that affects our our day-to-day to to be honest
0: brilliant i mean i imagine it must be incredibly rewarding when when you do something or you're part of something that you can see paying off you know over over sort of the medium to long term i would imagine it must be very very rewarding to do that
1: yeah it is i mean we take the, the i mean the work that i do is Always has a sort of very long termist outlook. In any case, so Mm. you know, I'm not about you know arresting the the little guys. I'm much more about the bigger picture and looking at things much much longer term. Um, So immediate successes uh, are sort of few and far between, Uh, but certainly you know longer term they they are definitely on the horizon. Um, And from you know on a on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. I do draw significant satisfaction from little things like, you know, mm. watching, watching how advanced the, the team that I manage in the Republic of Congo has, has progressed with their, you know, with their skills around gathering mm. information, for example, or, mm. Mm. um, watching, uh, watching a police officer in Madagascar that I did some training for a year ago, how they have progressed up the ranks. And now, but they're doing x y and z you know yeah. little things like that are really important um, oh, and i love you know i
0: love that brilliant and i think there's a real lesson there's a real takeaway here isn't there for people who are listening to this who who are thinking of leaving policing i think we've covered a lot we've covered talked a lot haven't we but um some of the things that you've said around taking those skills and that experience and knowledge from policing and taking it into a different world it it's in Police officers have got so many skills, so that they're just a, an incredible potential asset to so many different types of organisations. It's just about understanding how you package that experience up in a way that makes sense to someone who's never been in the police, I suppose, isn't it? That's exactly right. It's almost like translating
1: a foreign language text into English.
2: Hmm.
1: It's It's almost like that. Um, And I, you know, I would also say, don't be, you know, don't be constrained by limiting yourself to, you know, searching on Indeed.com for investigation jobs, widen, you know, widen your, widen your net, look for something that you really want to do, because I absolutely guarantee you, you will have the, you you will have the skills necessary. Mm. There's Mm. absolutely no two ways about it. But yeah, Yeah. it's just a, just a case of translating those things into, into understandable terminology very often.
0: Brilliant. Listen, my friend, we've been going for about an hour and 29, so it's probably, oh probably not a bad time to, to kind of like wrap it up, but listen, that was fantastic. I learned so much there as I often do with, uh, talking to people on the podcast. That was fascinating. And, and I really thank you so much for sharing those insights into what you've been doing and my pleasure. Yeah. It's just been, it's been great. Really great. Honestly. I, lo- I just love it. Love it. So, uh, Thanks. Thanks ever so much, Christian. And um, you're based in London, do you say?
1: I am, yes, absolutely. Always a Londoner. Always a Londoner. No, thank uh, you for your time, Ian. I really appreciate it. I have got this
0: kind of slightly harebrained idea of trying to pull together as many podcast guests as I can into one place. And and everybody just get a bit pissed and talk bollocks to each other. That'd be it's good. That'd be a hoot. Yeah,
1: definitely be up for that.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I take I take no I need no encouragement to get pissed. So, uh... <laughs> oh, who does? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, my friend. Thanks a million. Really appreciate it. No, Ian. thank you, uh, man.
1: Thank you. You enjoy the rest it. of your
0: day. And uh, yeah, I'll uh, this will probably be going out uh, today, actually. So um, no worries. Brilliant. Right. Thank thanks. Thank a you, Ian. You Great to talk to you. Yeah, and you. Speak take soon. bye Bye.
1: He was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him. It really makes us frown. No longer
2: do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>